0: Hello there. I just want to let our listeners know that uh, about 32 minutes into this recording, our recorder went wacko again. Sorry about that. And I had to re-record the last 10 minutes or so in my office. So if you hear a a, a change in the sound, that is because uh, the last little bit is recorded in my office. Okay, we're going to continue uh, today in the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting with us, we are going through the book of Ephesians slowly. And uh, we're in Ephesians 4, so you can flip there. We're going to be looking at, uh, starting in verse 16. Last week we talked about a little bit about uh Growing up into the full measure of the stature of Christ, Uh, we talked about God's purpose, the highest thought for creation, to have a people in whom He is glorified by conformity to the image of His Son. And then uh, we we continued into the next verse by discussing what it means, what I think it is referring to to be blown to and fro <clears throat> by every wind of doctrine, and uh, that brings us up to verse sixteen. And as always, if you missed those CD or that uh, that teaching, you can pick up a CD in the bookstore. Just grab one in there. Um, we, uh, we we wrapped up last time talking about verse fifteen, where Paul discusses speaking the truth in love, growing up into Him in all things. And that, that thought continues into verse 16. Uh, and that's where we're going to pick up today. So let me just read the next few verses and we'll we'll pick up where we left off. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to all uncleanness, and greediness. I'm going to start with uh, kind of combining uh, verses 15 and 16, even though we talked about verse 15 last week. Paul uh, sets out the goal first, that is, a perfect man. That's not you being a perfect man. That is the perfect man, one new man in Christ. Jew and Gentile, neither Jew nor Gentile. Christ all and in all. That's us. That's the body of Christ. And... uh, and that we are growing up. We are growing up to attain to the measure and the stature of Christ. And then he then he discusses something of the way in which we grow up into that man. And he tells us something about speaking the truth in love, growing up into him who is the head. And then verse sixteen he tells us that we're knit together by whatever he joint supplies, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Both of those um, verses, he references this phrase, in love, and I'll say something about that later. But I want to start by just reiterating something I said just briefly last week. Paul understood something about how spiritual growth works in souls. He understood something that I began to understand, though I would have told you I understood it very well Previously, I only began to understand what he is here describing when I came to some comprehension of the importance and reality of the revealing of Christ. The Spirit of God making the reality of Christ our life. Not a, not a doctrine or a theology, but a reality of experience in the soul. What did what did Paul understand here? I believe he understood that in order for us to grow up together into Christ, in order for us to grow up into the truth and the reality of what God has done for us in His Son, we need to present that truth to one another in such a way that the Spirit can use it for the revealing of that Son. You know, if you... Um, if you If you begin to see the Lord, the question sometimes comes up why why do we why do I preach the gospel? Why do any, any of us? I mean, I constantly talk about the absolute necessity of the of the inward knowing of Christ, the inward revealing of the Son, and it's an inward thing it's personal, it's a spiritual awakening to reality as God knows it to be and I'm always insisting that our salvation is not words but it is an encounter. And participation in the resurrection life of the Son of God. And it is that which only the Spirit of God can work in the soul. And I and I say perhaps more than any other thing, that only by the Spirit of God working in the heart can a human being ever know anything of, of truth. Not true doctrines or true teaching. I'm talking about knowing the truth. So the it kind of begs the question why do we preach if this is such a Inward reality and, and and a confrontation with the with the living God and the soul. And why do we come together and, and and share truth with one another? Why do we why do we share our view of faith? Well, I preach and I and I believe you share your view of spiritual reality in Christ because, in a word, because we are a body. More specifically, because we are the body of Christ, and just like natural bodies that we see in the earth. It is not the intention of God to have a foot grow to full stature apart from a leg. It is not the intention of God to have a finger grow into manhood or womanhood apart from the rest of the hand. A body grows and it functions together and we, as the Lord's body, are involved in the growth and function of one another. And just as the life that is in my feet serves the body, serves the life that it is joined to, and the, and the life that is in my eye serves the body, serves that, that same life, we share the reality of life that is working in us with the body to which we are joined. And we do that for the body's growth, and for its edification. And what does that look like? Well, I'm not talking about natural giftings here. You know, whenever people read some of Paul's body metaphors in in Scripture, there's a couple places where Paul compares the body of Christ to a natural body. It seems like most often when someone reads a body metaphor in the New Testament, they seem to automatically assume that Paul's understanding uh, of this is, is talking about the function of different members according to natural giftings. I mean, we read about how Paul says that the eye differs from the foot, and we automatically think, yeah, I play the piano, and Susie's got a great voice, and Billy, he's really a good communicator, and Bobby's great at finances. We make a really good church. And I'm sorry if this crushes your sense of importance, but that has relatively nothing to do with what Paul's talking about at all. We don't come together and offer one another natural giftings and earthly abilities. We come together and offer each other the measure of Christ that is working in our soul. Now, with the measure of Christ working in our soul, there can be outflow in our, uh, in or through natural giftings. That's true. But the gifting itself is not what we are supplying to each other. Can you hear the difference? Your gifting is not what I need. I need the measure of Christ that is working in you. And frankly, as far as the church goes, I don't really need anything else from you. Because the church is something entirely spiritual. And eternal. Now don't misunderstand me. As far as the earth goes, I need you in earthly ways. I may need you to babysit my kids. I would love for you to babysit my kids. <laughs> I may need you to make me a taco. That would be nice. Or mow my grass. But when we come together in the name of Christ, what I need from you very specifically, is to hear and share your view of the eternal reality that is being shown to you by the Spirit of God. That's what I want. What I need from you is to participate in your experience of the life of the Son of God. I want that. I want to share that with you. I need to grow up with you into Him who is the Head. I need you to give me whatever measure of Him is operating in you. Last week I joked a little bit about how small groups in the past for me were sometimes uh, times that we got together and shared natural problems and baked goods. And, uh, And I was sort of joking, but I was sort of not joking because even though it may feel intimate and real, it doesn't really do any good to get together and just talk about all the things in the world that hurt us. Now listen, I'm not trying to be callous and I'm not trying to be mean. I have things that hurt me too. You know, If you've been here very long, you know I have occasional cataclysmic panic attacks. I have bad hips. I have bad hair days every day. And even though there are times when it feels really good to get together with you and tell you just how sore my hips are or just how uh, wacky my emotions have been in the last week, that doesn't really end anything. It doesn't really change anything. It doesn't really cause me to grow. And it certainly doesn't help you at all. You know what does help me? helps me is when I sit down with you in the midst of my problems and struggles and blindness and pain, and instead of you trying to minister to my circumstances, you actually speak realities that bring me up out of them. You speak things that only the Spirit of God can make real in my soul, and you speak not, not, not doctrines and ideas and memorized verses. Not concepts and not applied Christianity. You speak out from a Spirit-given view of the reality of being alive with Christ in God. You talk to me about the reality of Christ's death that you are seeing and how that death is working in you. You talk to me about the scriptures that have become alive in your soul as realities. You talk to me about an aspect of the cross, maybe, that is becoming so real to you and it's having having the effect in you that it is crucifying you to the world and the world to you. And though I may protest at the moment, I really don't want you to empathize with me and sing Kumbaya and pass me a brownie. I mean that may feel good for a minute. It might soothe my emotions for for just a short time, but it won't leave me with anything eternal. It won't leave me with a substantial view of the Lord that I can abide in. It won't leave me with light. It'll leave me with just enough temporary comfort to get me to come back next week to the group and hope for a breakthrough. And we'll just play that thing out over and over and over. So why do we come together? Well, we come together to offer to one another the measure of Christ that is seen in and known by and functioning in our souls. We come together to minister one life to each part. And I... I can't literally give you more of Jesus or a greater awareness of, of the Christ that is in you. I, I often wish that it worked that way. I wish that I sometimes or you could do it to me or I could do it to you. We could just hand it over. But I can give you my view of Him. I can share faith with you. And for those of you who may be new with us or maybe visiting this morning, let me define my terms here a bit so that you don't misunderstand me. When I say share my view, I'm not talking about sharing my beliefs. I'm not talking about giving my testimony. It might be a nice story, but honestly, I don't think you're going to really profit much from hearing how the Lord provided for me financially. Or I'm not necessarily going to profit a whole lot inwardly from hearing about how you were born again in a Billy Billy Graham crusade. That's, that's not what I mean by sharing your view of Him. I know we make a really big deal about sharing our testimonies in, in the church, and I suppose it has its place, but I'm talking about something I think a lot more significant than that. When I speak of sharing a view of Christ or sharing faith, I mean very specifically the Spirit-given view or the mind of the Lord, the God-given realization of all that it means to be in Him, to be baptized into His death, raised with Him, seated with with Christ in the Father. I'm, I mean, I want you to do your best to describe to me something that is indescribable and let the Spirit of God fill in the blanks. I want you to try to tell me what you saw when the light of Christ shined in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to talk about it. I want you to tell me about it. And I want to open up my heart and ask the Spirit of God to shine the same light in me. When I say I want you to share your view of him, I mean the realities that you are seeing with the renewed mind. And if you are seeing nothing in that way, then you have nothing to share with me. And that's okay. It's much, it's much better for us to just sit there and remain silent than to offer people some kind of religious idea or platitude. It's just, it just doesn't do anything. If faith is foreign to me, In other words, if I have no present view of the Lord, then I have nothing to offer you except a hug and a prayer. But if you can see him, if you can see him in a way that is affecting your heart and shaping your soul, then sit down with me and try to bring me into that light. Because I want to see it. Because in that light, my problem doesn't exist. In that light, everything, including me, fades into the background. And I get to experience fellowship with the Father and with the Son. It's my, <clears throat> it's my belief that part, uh, not all, but part of the reason that we grow so little in the body of Christ, it has to do with the fact that we... Present to one another so little that actually represents a true statement of faith. And when I say statement of faith, I, I know that's a, a common way of describing a, a statement of belief or a belief statement. That's not what I mean. When I say a, a statement of faith, I mean a statement that comes out from faith. I mean I mean saying something that is actually spoken out from faith, a, a, a spirit, spiritual view. I believe uh, that that is what we need both in large groups and in small groups. So much of what we speak to one another in the name of Christianity, um, it's like it, it's not even enough to be used by the Spirit of God in our soul. It's not, there's not enough there for God to use to edify us. Not enough truth. It's like giving a, a carpenter a bag of marbles and asking him to make you a coffee table. It's just not not the right material. It doesn't really have what it takes to get the job done. If you come here on Sunday mornings and I attempt to offer you any of the popular five steps to being a better Christian or seven keys to finding your potential or if I give you practical ways to act more like Jesus or, 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 or different ways to apply scriptural principles to your life or your family or your business, if I do anything like that or if I even give you my ideas... My thoughts about what a scripture means and why it 's important that i 'm really offering you nothing, and I mean that i 'm offering you nothing if that 's what I do worse than than nothing i 'm giving the spirit of God a bag of marbles and asking him to to form the life of Christ in your soul. The only thing we 're sharing with you is the actual reality of Christ that is in my Spiritual field of vision and is presently working in me. And I'm not standing up here pretending like I do that well or that I know even well what that means. But I do know that growing up in Christ is a reality and not a theology. It's something that we experience in the soul when His life occupies and reigns and conforms and constrains us. And it's something that the Spirit of God is able to work in us as we hear and want to know the truth as it is in Christ. The true faith begins with hearing, but it must be a hearing of the living Word of God. Paul talks about speaking the truth to one another and being knit together by each joint, supplying to that body. He's talking about each of the members of the body of Christ ministering to one another the measure of Christ. In fact, in the in the Greek, and, and I think it reads better in the King James and in the New King James that I read from here. Uh, certainly it reads better in J.P. Green's Litvy. It actually says, we are ministering to each other the one measure that works in every part. And that's just conveniently um, edited out of this translation, but that's how it reads. In this way, though, when I am ministering to you Something of the measure of Christ that I am seeing and coming to comprehend and knowing and experiencing. Well, then then I can fill up your lack and you can fill up mine as we progress towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You'll notice in verse 15 and 16, uh, there's this little phrase, in love. Paul says, Paul says that we're speaking the truth in love, and then he he says in verse 16 that we're being built up in love. And I thought I just might say a couple things and then move on, but just a couple things about this phrase, because it's one of those things that I think that we automatically think that we understand, uh, but I'm not so sure that we do. At first glance, when you read this, uh, that we are to speak the truth in love, I think it's generally assumed that Paul's telling us to speak true things in a loving way. Kind of like he's saying, say it, but say it nicely. And similarly, in the next verse, when we are being edified in love, it's probably assumed that Christians are to grow up towards a loving disposition or kindness. And while I think that both of those are appropriate and those are both valid ideas, I honestly don't think that that's what was in Paul's mind when he penned those verses. I think that Paul's understanding of love here goes beyond niceness or Kind, kindness of speech. I think he added the phrase in love at the end of both of those because he knew he was talking about the body of Christ and because to him love was the nature and reality of our relationship with Christ. And what I mean by, well, this is difficult for me to, to, uh, to describe. Let me just say it and then if you, if you can hear it, you can hear it. I'm sure I'll try again later. But love is the nature of a relationship. See, it's not just the way that we feel. It's not just the way that we act. Love describes the nature of the relationship that we have with one another because, specifically, because our lives, our lives were lost at the cross and now we live in and we live by the life of Christ. So love... As we've talked about other times, it seeks not its own gain, Paul says. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's always patient. But it is those things precisely because our lives are out of the way, having been lost at the cross. So to the extent that self has been put away through conformity to the death of Christ, only to that extent can we actually relate to one another in love. Because wherever self lives, all things are done for self. Can you hear that? But love, see, that's not what love is about. That's not what love describes. Love describes a relationship that is unlike that. Love describes a relationship. It's not, it's not just a nice way to say something. It's not just a nice way to do things. It's, it's, a, it's a way of relating to one another in Christ where we have no life but Him. Where, love, is a, love is a way of relating where, where our lives are laid down and His life that we share is the central reality of all things. It is the nature of our relationship with Him. You know, whenever love is talked about in the New Testament, whether it's by Jesus or whether it's by Paul or John, it always seems to be describing something that is absolutely impossible. Like 1 Corinthians 13, for instance. And as a matter of fact, it is impossible. The nature and reality of love that, that are described in those kinds of verses describe something that is absolutely impossible to the natural man. And only when and to the measure that the natural man has been conformed to the death of Christ is any kind of real love an option. The nature of the Adamic man, as we've talked about so many times, is to seek his own gain. But when that man faces the cross and is conformed to death, then and only then can Christians actually relate to one another in love. See, speaking the truth in love or relating to one another in love isn't just saying it with a smile. It's not just, not just the hug and the, the things that feel like love to us. It's more than that. It may include those things, but it is actually relating to one another with no life but Christ. Relating to one another, having laid down our lives and finding, just like with my body... All things are done out from and for the good of that body. Love is the, is the nature of the reality of relationship that we've come to in Christ. Not to say that we are always walking in love, but we are growing up into Him so that we can relate in love. And if that does not make sense to you, don't worry about it. Paul moves on from here and and contrasts His expectation for the church to grow up into the fullness of Christ with what he desires them to leave behind. Specifically, he desires them to leave behind the darkness and futility of the natural mind. So now we're in, uh, what are we in? Verse uh, 17, really 17 through 19, I guess. He says, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. I just want to say a few things about this darkness and this blindness that Paul's describing here. And then, then we'll uh, we'll be done, but... I think that darkness is is probably one of the most underestimated and unrealized realities in the body of Christ, specifically the darkness of the natural mind, the darkness of what you and I see with, by nature. I'm afraid very few realize that the natural mind is without question the darkest region in all of creation. It wasn't created to be that way, but it became that way when man believed a lie. Think about this with me. What is, what is light? <clears throat> what is light in the natural realm? Well, in the natural realm, light is the appearance of what is real. Light is what brings us into a view of what is there, what is true, what actually exists. And spiritual light is very similar. It's, it's, it's not visible to the natural eye. Spiritual light is what I've been talking about in the first part. Spiritual light is, is uh, it's still the appearance of what is real. Spiritual light, which you could also call it God's view or God's understanding or the spirit of truth making real in your heart the things uh, that God has freely given to you or the spirit guiding you into all truth or the renewing of the mind, whatever light is God's mind, God's view, God's understanding. And it brings us into a view of what is there, what is there where, what is there in Christ. Where you are, where you have been raised up and seated. Light shines in your soul to give you a God-given comprehension of what is there. Just like light in this room gives me a comprehension of the ugliness of this room. So just as natural light doesn't uh, describe to you something, but rather shows all things to you, Spiritual light doesn't describe things to you in words. See, we're always thinking we can learn God in words. We're always thinking we can learn about him in words. But light doesn't describe God to you in words. Light simply shows you what is there. It simply shows you spiritual reality as it is. And and when light shines in your heart you're always at a loss for words because words couldn't have brought you to that view and words can't take that view and bring it to someone else. So then there's always a struggle of trying to put into words what what was actually a matter of seeing. Unfortunately, in the body of Christ, we have made faith a matter of believing and sight a matter of seeing when it couldn't be more opposite. Faith is the seeing of the soul. And sight is the seeing of the natural eye. And we are meant to walk by faith and not by sight. But to many of us, that just means walk by what we believe. At any rate, the light of Christ shines in your heart and a million words won't do it justice. And that is why Only when you see Him in the light, it feels like it's the first time you ever read the words that have always been in the book that describes Him. Anyway, what's darkness? Darkness is the absence of God's view. That's the absence of His light. And so in in darkness, absolutely nothing of spiritual reality can be seen or understood. I wish I had a way to say that, that was stronger. I wish I could... I wish I could um, tattoo that into our soul. I wish there was some way I could make everybody believe that. That that would sink into our hearts. That in, in darkness, in the darkness of the natural mind, nothing of spiritual reality can be seen. However, a great deal can be imagined. The mind of the natural man is by nature completely devoid of light. It is a darkness that natural darkness can only testify of. You think you've seen dark when you've gone down into a cave and turned off your headlight. That's about the darkest I've seen in the natural realm. That is the shadow of spiritual darkness that reigns in the Adamic mind. And believing the lie, man became a light unto himself. He became a source unto himself. And in so doing, he refused the light of life. And consequently, apart from the light of life illuminating the soul, absolutely nothing that man thinks or sees or understands is according to truth. And if we could only just accept that without calling our darkness light, you know, man thinks things. Man, man believes things, reads things, teaches things, and all the while we assume that truth can be seen in the dark. Now, nobody would really say it that way. We don't. We don't realize that that assumption is beneath all of our thinking. We read. We read a book about God, for instance, some some Christian book. It's well written. It sounds good. It sounds like something. Uh, that, that, that ministers to your heart. It, it, it's interesting. We get excited about it, and we, we, afterwards, we put it down, and we presume the truth has been seen. But more often than not, nothing has been seen—not by faith, not not in the light. Though a whole lot of things have often been imagined. Or maybe we feel guilty before God. We feel. Uh, ashamed, And then somebody walks up to us and tells us that there's no condemnation in Christ. And that immediately makes us feel better. And, and we're so glad that we saw the truth. But we didn't really see anything. Not a real seeing in the light. Not, not the seeing that transforms a soul. We just heard something that made us feel better. Or maybe we read Calvin's Institutes or some... Uh, book on systematic theology, and afterwards we feel like we've we've come to such a, a much more full understanding of the truth and we have a better handle on the nature and plan and purpose and ways of God. See what a deception that is. man can learn many things without ever seeing anything in the light. Now, how effective is it? to study a work of art in a pitch-dark room? How effective is it to read a classic novel in a room without any light? You know, nobody would even attempt it. But why in the world do we seek to know and learn and teach the reality of our salvation in Christ apart from the light of God showing us who He is and what He's done? I'll tell you something, God's book without God's light is a very dangerous thing. Many people have been ruined by it. Many people have been, their lives have been destroyed when man utilizes God's word without God's light. Jesus says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Do you suppose he was just talking to first century Pharisees there? Do you you think he had a specific person or people group in mind? Or do those words describe the entire race of man that sees and walks and judges by a darkness that we call light? Is it possible that our eyes have become so accustomed to the darkness that we actually believe that they can see? Worse than that, is it possible that we actually like it that way? John said in John 3, this is the condemnation. A light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may, deeds may be clearly seen <clears throat> that they have been done in God. In our verse today Paul says that man is alienated alienated from God because of the darkness that is in them but that's not the case because God is far from us or because he's withholding himself from us so much of uh, what I've heard in the body of Christ it's like we're playing this cat and mouse game with God or we're seeking and he's He's hiding and then revealing himself. And it's, it's never a matter of God hiding himself or alienating himself from man. It's that we, it's always the same thing. It's always the same problem. If God cannot be found by you, it is because you love the darkness. And I know that's a hard thing to say. But we love the darkness We safely keep our distance from the light because light always tells the truth. And we often, most often, don't really want to face the truth. Light is always going to show you what is real. And the vast majority of humanity, and I'm talking about Christian humanity, would rather live a fantasy that can only exist in the darkness than invite the light of life to rain on our parade. It's going to ruin so much of what we are so established in. And that's a good thing. It's a very, very, very good thing. And it's continual. It's ongoing and progressive in the heart. But it's the end of everything that was not known in the light. Jesus says man loves darkness because our deeds are evil. It's really that simple. We love darkness because that is that is the only place that self can hide. Self, in the, in the dark, self can hide in the imagination of self-worth and self-righteousness and self-justification and all of the plans and purposes and even Christian plans and purposes that we are so certain were invented by God but only in darkness can those kinds of ideas exist light immediately destroys them light immediately embarrasses all of our man-made notions and and you know you're seeing in the light when 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 suddenly you're struck with the reality of the stupidity and the self-seeking and the embarrassment of of having constructed a a whole framework for understanding god and serving god and and loving god and all the things that you suddenly see to be inventions of the darkness of the natural mind and again that comes in waves of of light and 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 and, and the the dawning of reality in the heart but it's always an end of the things that man has imagined and that that goes for the end of the spiritual things that man has imagined as well. I can't tell you how important that is to me personally, to to realize constantly, to realize all the time that God is desiring so much to show me so, so much more than I've known. And the only thing standing in His way is my love for the darkness. Now, those are hard words. I realize that. I realize that when I say them about myself, but it doesn't make them not true. I love, man loves darkness. Jesus said it. We'd very much rather hold on to the things that we are so sure are right than let his light in. Light destroys and embarrasses our ideas. But that's the best thing that you could ever hope for because then you see what's real. But more often than not, if there's a way to avoid the light, then we're going to find it. If there's a way to maintain what we think, we'll attach dozens of Bible verses to it and hold on to it till our dying day. We're particularly adept at hiding in our own darkness while condemning others who do the same thing in a different way. At any rate, Ephesians 4, Paul's describing the nations of the world who don't know God, and he's telling the Ephesians that now in Christ they're growing up in the light rather than reveling in the darkness. He's saying that the nations are walking in the darkness of their own mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance and blindness of the heart. And that's certainly true of the unbeliever. That's certainly true, and I I realize that that's... uh, in this context in this verse that Paul is talking about uh, the, uh, the the unbeliever but I want, I want you to consider this morning just as we close here that that exact same darkness continues to work in you and I after we are born again to the measure that we hide in the darkness of the unrenewed mind and refuse the light to the measure that we live in the blindness of the natural heart of Adam. That darkness continues to reign in us. I talk to a lot of Christians who are uh, wondering why so little has changed in their life after they're born again. Some of them have been saved for decades, <clears throat> others not as long, but still there's always this question. in so many that, uh, at least those who are honest with themselves, where is the transformation? What is transformation? After several years of uh, pursuing God diligently and disciplining my flesh and crying out to Him with prayer and doing what I could think of to serve Him, I wondered that very thing. I wondered why I still had no idea what it meant for a soul to be literally transformed into the image of of Christ, and The answer came when I realized that light is something absolutely foreign to the heart and the thoughts of humanity. Light light is the view of God that works in the soul. It's, it's something altogether supernatural. It is God's view that works in the soul and we will acknowledge and turn from the futility of our mind. So it's one thing to have the life of God residing in your heart. It's another thing altogether to be living and growing and walking in the light of that life. Life is granted upon new birth. but transformation of the soul is a work of the light. So we'll just close with that and uh, pick it up next week. Amen.